today we're talking about resilience. And, uh, and I don't mind telling you that I'm, there are things going on in my life right now that require me to use my resilience skills, to use all my spiritual skills, my, my patience, my ability to get quiet in the moments that I need quiet, and my ability to um, stay in the present, which is maybe the most important um, skill that I can use when life is sort of bouncing around. And as it, as it works out, as it, it just always does in this amazing universe, this mir amazing miraculous universe that we live in, there are always so many parallels and coincidences and synchronicities. And we have been in our class um, studying Brene Brown's book um, called, I thought it was just me, but it wasn't. And, her, and the book is about shame and about how to deal with shame. And the, the overall message is, you're never gonna get to a place where you don't experience shame, probably, as long as you're in a human body. So the trick is not to figure out how to be perfect and never feel it. The trick is how to use your skills to bounce back from it. Resilience to shame. We need resilience to shame. We need resilience to loss. We need resilience to change of any kind because change of any kind feels like a loss, even if it's good, even if it's what we want, even if it's what we planned for. It's a change. So whatever is new means we have to let go of something else. Let go of the shore and let the water carry us. And we don't like feeling like the water is carrying us. We like feeling like we're in charge of the water. And of course, we never are, just sometimes we're able to fool ourselves that we are. And so um, I want to talk about resilience overall. And first of all, I'm going to just give you the Webster definition of resiliency. The capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties, toughness. The second is the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape, elasticity. So you got a rubber ball, it's resilient. It hits the floor, it flattens for a moment, and it bounces right back, right? Or is that legs have memory yarn? It stretches out and it stretches back. That's, that's physical resilience, but we need spiritual and emotional resilience. So um, I like this definition of resiliency that um, one of my professors in seminary gave. Resiliency is the ability to survive and thrive amidst change, disruption, and adversity without exhibiting dysfunctional behavior. <laughs> oh, there's that part. <laughs> Most of us survive whatever is thrown at us. You know, we all die someday, but that means until we die, we didn't die of any of the things in between, right? As uh, Michael Murdad says, if you're meant to drown, you'll never be shot. <laughs> someday we're all gonna die, but how many times do we face something that feels like a death in between? And maybe even things that we don't know whether they're gonna be a death or not. So um, this ability to survive, but not only to su survive, but to thrive to actually continue to live our lives rather than, you know, just hold on in survival mode behind a rock in a corner in the dark, which is the way I sometimes have survived things in my life. I don't know about you. But to survive and thrive, change, disruption, adversity, any challenge that comes along without exhibiting dysfunctional behaviors. Hmm. 
Perhaps it's a dysfunctional behavior to hide behind a rock and not talk to anybody. Um, dysfunctional behaviors include, include lashing out at others. Dysfunctional behaviors include taking it all on. It's all my fault, it's all me, and drowning in a pool of shame um, or misplaced guilt. There's all kinds of dysfunctional behaviors. I mean, anger is an easier place to go to than grief, which is why a lot of us go to anger when really what we are is grieving. So <clears throat> without, <laughs> without displaying dysfunctional behaviors, ah, okay. Or as another teacher said, growing stronger one disruption at a time. Because the beauty of resilience is that every time you bounce back from something, you are actually that much more prepared to bounce back from the next thing. If you've used your tools, then your tools are getting stronger, as are you. And then the next blow that happens, you tend to bounce back a little more quickly. I know this is not what you want to hear. You want to hear, just keep your head up and there will be rainbows all the way. But I would be lying to you if I said that, and I do my best not to lie to you up here. So how do we um, bounce back from change, from loss? Um, we have to let go of whatever it was that we have to let go of, like truly let go, not like try to hold on to it until it gets ripped out of our bleeding fingernails, you know? To let go and then allow ourselves to experience what it feels like to let go, which doesn't always feel like the song, let the water carry you. Sometimes it feels like emptiness. It feels like loss. It feels like terror. It feels like grief. And that's okay, because when we experience our emotions, we move through them. When we don't experience our true emotions, they do not go anywhere. They are still there, and they will find their way out, usually sideways, if we're not willing to look at them head on. And so we have to let go of what was and to experience the loss of whatever it is that we've lost. Sometimes something that we're tied to is we're tied to so strongly that we identify with it, that it feels like who we are. When I lost a job at, that I'd been at for 24 years, I was only, I think, 43 years old. So I had been in that job longer than I had not been in that job. And the time I was not in that job, I wasn't in any job because I was a child. So I identified with it. And it was very, very hard for me to let go of this is who I am. Um, and, and guess what? I learned that what I do is not who I am. Not saying I don't need reminders of that occasionally, but I know that what I do is not who I am, which is what allowed me to survive life until I got to you. <laughs> because I spent some years going, okay, I don't even know what, what's my next thing to do. I keep thinking I know the next thing to do, and then I go there and pfft, it disappears like a cloud. Um, so we do get stronger. As we use these tools, these tools get stronger. They get more habitual. The other thing that we have to do to bounce back from change or loss, and I hate this part, is to wait, is to rest in that place where we don't know. Because more often than not in life, what I have noticed is there is a, um, 
there is a, a moment when you've let go of what you know doesn't serve, but you haven't yet got a good grasp on what does. And so you're in this in-between place. It's very uncomfortable. My friend, um, Reverend Ellen Devonport, calls it hell in the hallway. <laughs> she says, you know, when one door closes, another one always opens. But it's hell in the hallway. Because you can be in that hallway and keep beating yourself head against brick walls. You can be searching for a door for a long time, or you can be like, this is the door, I know it is, and I'm gonna make it open, and that door just won't open. Meanwhile, you might w miss you know, a window somewhere else that's opening. And so learning how to wait, how to be patient, and I'm the first to tell you, I'm not good at that. That waiting to hear news about what your next step is supposed to be may be the hardest thing we face as humans. Because um, once we know what's next, then <clears throat> we can mostly fortify and do what's next. Um, but not knowing is very painful. So we wait, and then eventually we accept whatever the new reality is. Sometimes it is a reality that we've longed for but we just haven't quite grown into yet. And so we still have to go through acceptance, like, yeah, this is where I am, this is what I'm doing now, this is, this is the landscape that I now live in, which is different from the ones I've lived in in the past. And we begin to, unfortunately, identify with a new normal. <laughs> Once again, it's very hard not to identify with what we do or where we are. And it's just human that we do. But it becomes more habitual and less of a struggle. And then, um, eventually, we just keep taking steps forward until we go, oh yeah, until we know our way, until we feel strong, until our wobbly, I'm not sure legs get really strong in what we're doing. We recognize, first of all, that change happens, that as the Buddha said, life is dukkha, which sounds a lot like life is dookie to me. <laughs> and it kind of means the same thing. <laughs> in life, there is suffering. We spend so much time in the West going, but why is this happening? It's like, why not? It happens literally to everybody all the time. And yet, every time it happens to us, we get surprised and incensed. How dare the world happen to me in the way it happens to other people? And so we get to that point where we go, okay, life has shame, it has loss, it has pain. And my job isn't to make it not hurt. My job is to learn how to be strong through that and come out the other side into new strength. And so we recognize when we feel this loss of control, we name it. That's very helpful in order to be resilient. What's happening with me now? I am scared because I'm completely out of control. Ah, I'm actually out of control all the time. Sometimes I get to hold on to the illusion of control. So what have I really lost? An illusion, but we cherish our illusions. So recognizing, and Brene Brown in her book about, about shame says the first way to get resilience from shame is to recognize when you're having a shame response. Are you guilty? Did you do something wrong which you can then fix? Then fine, do that. But shame is really not about what I did. Shame is about who I am. I think something's wrong with me. Not I did something wrong. 
I need to go fix it, but I did something wrong, so I am bad. Or maybe even I didn't do something wrong, but I am bad. Maybe somebody did something to me. And rather than going, they did something wrong that they need to feel guilty about, we take on the shame ourselves. It often happens with victims, and especially when we're victimized as children. We take, on, we take on the shame of the other person. So the first thing we have to do is recognize what it is. I always know when I'm experiencing shame because my ears get really hot <laughs> and my face gets red. You can just watch the blush rise. We have physical responses to shame. So we start to recognize what is going on with me. Name it, claim it. Once you have named something, you have regained a measure of, I don't want to use that word control. You've regained a measure of the ability to navigate, right? When you name it, you now have a map that is of the actual territory that you're standing in. Whereas if you don't name it, you may be holding a map that's years old, that's from a different hemisphere. <laughs> or you may not have a map at all and just feel like everything's just happening to you. And we do have maps. Our tools give us maps. Um, Let your heart be your compass, Karen Song says beautifully. And so recognizing it is actually very important. And then we exercise, I, I, it, you could call it context, you could call it critical awareness. Context means, wait a minute, or critical awareness, let's, let's look at this thing. Objectively, is this thing my fault? Is there something that I need to be ashamed about? Is this really happening objectively? Or do I just think it is? Do I actually, for me, critical awareness often is, I wanna go to the very worst scenario. That's the first place my mind goes. It is not my last resort, it is my first leap. And then I have to go, wait a minute, do I actually have any facts to back that up? And if I don't, then I have to let go of making that leap. And if I think I have some facts, or I have some half-baked facts, or I have some facts um, that, you know, one or two facts that don't tell the whole picture, I have to deal with that. Often I have facts that would point to the opposite. But for some reason, I want to look at the worst thing because I think if I think it's going to be the worst thing, I can prepare myself, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And to not think of the worst or blindly go, it's all going to work out, it's going to be fine. I'm great. I'm just great. I'm great. That's so great. You do that? How are you? I'm great. I'm fine. Yeah. It doesn't work because we don't believe ourselves when we tell ourselves it's great, when we know it may very well not be great. And so... We call it what it is, we get some awareness around it, we give it some context. It's not the end of the world, I don't even know what it is yet. So why would I start putting on my pack to travel to the end of the world when I actually don't have a map in my hands yet? Can I wait? Can I get quiet? Can I look into my inner resources and know that I have a higher power, whatever I choose to call it, even if it's my higher self, it's, if it's the love that I know lives within me and that has power in the world, if it's what I call God or Krishna or Buddha or Jesus or whatever, I have access to power. That puts it in context. 
Um, Einstein very famously said over and over again, you cannot solve a problem at the level of the problem because you just get more problemated. So when you're faced with a problem, you have to go up a level. You have to go up to the, uh, to me, the, that up a level is higher power. That up a level is I don't know, but God does. I don't know, but I know that miraculous things happen in this world all the time. And so I allow that to be part of the context that enters my mind. And then the next thing is connection. So connection means we reach out to other people who have been through something similar or are going through something similar. And then we have empathy going both ways. I know how you feel. You know how I feel. And we are no longer alone. Not even just our higher power that keeps us from being alone, but actual skin on, which I guess when you reach out to someone who has the ability to help you or that you have the ability to help, that is God to me. That is God with skin on. The God in me is reaching out to the God in you. We are mutually agreeing that there is something higher and we're going to hold each other. We're going to hold that high place for one another. That's empathy. That's connection. That's why support groups work. That's why 12 Steps are a we program, not an I, but a we program, knowing that other people have walked the path and have walked it successfully and have come out the other side with some joy gives us a greater context. That connection even gives us context. And context, Jesus said the lamp of the body is the eye. Okay? I think what he meant by that is it depends on how you see it, Right? If you're going to see it dark, you're, you're going to walk in darkness. But if you can see it with some light, then you can walk in light. The Buddha said something similar. He said he talked a lot about clear seeing. Clear seeing. Not seeing as all of our emotions tell us it might be, but seeing as it is. Seeing things as they are. And from there, as soon as we see things as they are, then we have a map. We're not holding on to an old one. We're not walking blind. We have a map. We know, at least we know where we're starting from. And then, um, really, empathy is about the golden rule. It's about treating others as you would have them treat you. It's about, um, that, that's the kind of connection that I'm talking about, that I feel what you feel, and you feel what I feel. doesn't mean you take on my feelings, but you understand at a deeply human level and, and are there with me, not standing above going, oh, I feel so sorry for you. That's not empathy. Empathy is, man, I get it, and I can't take it from you, but I am here for you while you go through it. Empathy and connection. And then we speak it. We express it into the light. I already talked about that. Name it, claim it. Um, what Jesus said is that, that you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It will make you free because guess what? No matter how bad you think the truth is, if you're claiming a lie, you are chained. No matter what, you are chained. The truth can make you free. So I want to just real quickly talk about another sort of model for resiliency. It's the, our outlook. It's that clear seeing, right? It's that lamp of the body is the eye. How are we seeing it? And what research has shown is that to be too pessimistic is very harmful. And to go into complete optimism land is also very harmful. But to stay somewhere in the middle 
in, in, in real, in realistic land, tending toward the optimistic side. Anything could happen, and since I don't know what it is, I could actually do myself some good by remembering that the very best could happen. What if what happens is something I cannot imagine and it's better than anything I've ever thought of? And I'm not going to say, it's all great. I'm saying, yeah, this is painful and the possibilities are endless and I serve myself better if I stay in the positive possibilities for as long as I can. Reboundability. So that means we have our, our strength and our values and we hold to them tightly, but we also are flexible because we may have to change some of those. If we value standing in this spot strongly no matter what and never being moved and you know, we keep getting shoved aside or the ground opens up beneath us, then that value is not gonna serve us anymore. We have to be flexible. Okay, well, I'll stand on this ground instead and I'll hold on to it somewhat steadfastly until the next ground comes along. You know, we may actually have to shift the way we think about the world. And then there's the way that we use our energy. What do we focus on? Are we externally engaged? Like, okay, I, it depends on this and this and this and this test and this person and this happening and this job and this relationship. That's what it all depends upon. Or do we go, no, it all depends upon me. What am I gonna do? How am I going to navigate this? People who are truly resilient have a little bit of both. They have hope that external things will change and they're willing to do what's necessary when they can to make those changes, but they also understand that the doing what is necessary is an inside job. And how we focus our energy, again, is an inside job. And how we care for ourselves in the hallway determines our ability to be resilient. So if we're in the hallway and it's like, well, I don't know what's happening yet and a door hasn't opened. So until then, I won't eat or sleep and I will only um, <laughs> concentrate on terribly negative things or distract myself with things that actually harm me rather than help me. Then that is not practicing good, good self-care and when a door opens, we might not have the strength to get through it. So we have to practice self-care. That's part of being resilient, is saying, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I know right now I need to rest, or I need to sleep, or I need to call somebody. Right now I need connection, or right now I need food more than I need a seventh cup of coffee, perhaps. Not, not you, obviously. That would be, that'd be somebody else. But, um, you know, that... Holding on to self-care when, when the world would seem that you're having to focus on what's happening out here just to keep from falling in the hole. Actually, self-care is the way that you do these other things. It's the way that you stay flexible. It's the way that you can focus your energy in the places that are the most helpful. It's the way that you can see most clearly is when you take care of yourself so that you even have the capacity to do so. And then there's this relational intelligence, like how much do I depend upon myself and how much do I reach out and ask others? That's part of self-care. It's part of connection. It's part of empathy. And it is definitely 
to think it's all on us will always lead us into a place that's not very good. And I know that because most of my life, I think it's, I have thought, it's all on me, it's all on me, I gotta figure it out, it's all on me. And guess what? If it ever got figured out, it wasn't me. <laughs> Darn it, it wasn't me. It was me in concert with other people. It was me with divine ideas coming in and saying, whoa, you're looking at this all wrong and filling me with a new energy. It was me reaching out. It was me asking for help. It was me finding the right group or the right book or the right whatever, which then led me to the right people. We never do anything alone, ever, ever. If you feel like you're alone, you're not. You're actually not. And so this relational intelligence. And then here's the deal. With all of that that I've said before, gratitude. Gratitude for what we have right now. Gratitude for where we are right now. I'm in the hallway, which means I'm not actually in hell at the moment. I haven't actually fall through a crack and hit the bottom. I may not actually be where I want to be, but here I am waiting for what happens next. I'm going to be grateful. And when we've lost something very precious to us, then we can be grateful that we had something that precious. Grief is the price we pay for love. Because everything we love will pass away. Everything on this earth that we love will pass away. And grief means that we dared to love it completely anyway. And that's something to hold to, to be proud of, to feel good about, to just love and be grateful. Have you ever thought, oh, I don't want to be too grateful for this because what if it's taken away? I don't want to make a big deal of it. Be grateful, because being grateful will lead you to all those other things. It will attract people to you, because people like grateful people. People feel more comfortable around people who aren't a thundercloud all the time. People don't know how to reach out to you when you walk around as a thundercloud. I know this. I've been a thundercloud. People don't know how to deal with that. But when I can get some gratitude into this situation, it changes me. And I believe on a cellular level, it changes me. And somehow I'm sending out different vibes that people are attracted to rather than the vibes of, poor me, I'm all alone. <laughs> Self-fulfilling prophecies are what we do. So gratitude, <sighs> you are responsible for what you can change and the only thing you can personally change 100% complete is your own attitude. And so gratitude is a wonderful way out of that. I'm going to leave you with um, a couple of quotes. One is a Chinese proverb. I fall down seven times. I get up eight times. Right? Just keep getting up. That proves you're resilient. And this quote from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. 
These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Beautiful people are those who are able to find some tools to get them through the challenges that life brings and come out of it transformed. Because if you can survive and thrive without resorting to too many dysfunctional behaviors, I don't know if we're ever going to get through without exhibiting any dysfunctional behaviors, but if you can survive and thrive by focusing on those behaviors which are good for you, for the world, and for everyone else, then you become a very attractive person because people understand that you have the capacity for com compassion, that you have the capacity for empathy, and you are stronger in all of that. And that's what it means to be resilient. It doesn't mean to never hurt. It means to hurt and keep on doing life anyway until you come to a place where you realize, yeah, the hurt was worth it because the joy is also there. Always, always. And the love never leaves us. Thank you. fall down seven times, I get up eight. So if you all just take a moment to go to this place of quiet, this place in the inner sanctum of your own soul, your own body, your own spirit, your own emotions, Simply breathe into that space. The Hindus speak of the heart space as a place where there is a flame the size of a thumb. Always there, always warm, always light. does not go out even when your body goes out the flame remains and those lucky ones of us who are aware of that flame that lives within us get to intentionally fan the flame and make it larger and warmer so that it lights up not just this tiny place in our hearts, but lights up our whole bodies and our whole lives. So I ask you in this moment to breathe in, and with every breath, inhale and exhale, see that flame inside your heart expand.
can visualize that light and that warmth from your shoulders going down both arms. Your upper arms to your elbow, to your forearms, to your wrists, to your hands, and your fingertips. said the lamp of the body is the eye and if your eye be single if your eye is focused on God on spirit on truth on what is good then your whole body will be full of light so allow that visualization of that flame that warmth that light to expand up through your neck and all throughout head. And then to expand even downward from your belly throughout your lower abdomen. All the way down to your sacrum and continuing out through your legs. Warmth This light is the inexhaustible warmth and light of love. It is the love inside of you, which is your connection with all the love that ever is, ever was, and ever will be. Imagine, if you will, that your body is so full of light that as you stand in the light of love, the edges of you disappear. You are that love, all of that love. And claim it. I am a being of love, created in love, created for the purpose of love. It is so much mine that no matter how much I give, I will never have less. And so I give love freely. Even as I receive love from everywhere around me. This light, this warmth, this love is the truth of who you are. It's the truth of who I am. And so I can use an exercise like this, a meditation, a time of concentrating on the love that I know 
and consciously expanding it to the love that I can't yet imagine. But choose to believe. An exercise like this helps me grow strong. place right now where I am, this body where I'm sitting, where I do see the boundaries between me and others, where I do perceive not only light but darkness around me. Still, I carry within me this knowledge of the truth of the love that is available to me at all times. give thanks for it. And I remind myself over and over to offer it to myself, to partake of it, and to offer it to others, for that is how we connect. And I claim in this moment there, there is nothing in this world that love will not see me through. And so I rest in gratitude that love is mine and that I know it. That I've been brought to a place in my life where I'm allowed to have that awareness that so many people do not have. Love is mine. And not only mine, because I share it with every atom of the universe. And it can never be taken away. So I return to this room become aware of my body sitting in this chair, this pew, open my eyes perhaps, and know that as I leave here today, this love goes with me. Everywhere I go and in everything that I do, I am never without love. And so it is. <laughs>